Welcome to the Review Podcast. Podcast. I am Samuel Brody Boyd. And I am his father, Bentley Boyd. And we are pop culture lovers of going on 20 years now. Uh, it's really my fault. Uh, I thought that pop culture mattered. My father was a studio artist and sculptor. My mother was a classical pianist. And so art mattered in our household. And I thought for a long time that I would be involved in pop culture in some way uh, through newspapers. And I still am involved in pop culture in that I grew up loving comic books and I have my own comic book company, but I've never done anything in film professionally. I just love it. So then when I had Samuel and his brother Truman, it was a chance for me to teach them how important I thought these things were. And I got to say, speaking as a parent who's a Gen Xer, I think having a canon is even more important now than it was when I was growing up. So a canon, the concept, if you've taken any college courses or if you're in high school and you're being taught uh, about certain things that are important, the idea of a canon is we as a very diverse society with lots of different things going on still need to gather around a certain set of ideas and works of art so that we're all at least looking at the same campfire. And we can have the discussion about what's important, but we need to have a few touchstones, and that is called the canon, C-A-N-O-N, not the thing that fires artillery shells. Having a baseline also allows us to be able to talk about the elements of newer content that we like and gives us a good starting point from which we can discuss all of this new media that is coming from places like Netflix, from non-traditional television, from YouTube, from all kinds of different spaces that never existed even 10 years ago. Uh, without a canon that we can all agree on, without a baseline, we'll all just be kind of fracturing off and you'll be able to kind of just find your own tribe of media. So what we hope to provide is a little bit of perspective through years of watching movies, loving film, loving animation, and just engaging with people and, and things outside of our comfort zone pretty regularly. At this point, there's so much content that we could watch just one of those outlets. You could just watch Netflix from now until the day you die, and you still wouldn't see everything. So we have friends sharing with us, you know, what are they binge watching now, and that's pretty cool. But there's no way to watch everything. Mm -hmm. And I also, as an older person, I just am turning 50 today. This is kind of a birthday present to me that we're going to launch this podcast today. You know, I get a little irritated with all of the review sites that are now out there that are just, uh, you know, like Rotten Tomatoes doesn't mean much to me. A numerical score doesn't tell me very much about a movie or how it fits into our cultural tradition. I'm hoping that this podcast will give you some more ideas to go with the raw ratings that you see pop up the first weekend the movie's out. So broadly, when we go after a movie and talk about it and uh, discuss it, what we're going to basically follow is a structure where we set up where is it in the canon? What is it in conversation with? After that, we'll try and present kind of a central question to the narrative, either in the meta-narrative of how the movie is released and presented, or in the narrative of the film itself. We'll obviously talk about it after that, discuss, give our various perspectives, and finally, we'll discuss a question going forward. And we won't announce these as we go, it'll just be kind of how we format what our discussions are going to be. And since this is our first podcast, you know, it's really important for us to do something uh, very near and dear to my heart, uh, the works of Jane Austen. 
<laughs> no, 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 no. You know, I was of course just, we're going to talk about Star Wars. Of course Wars. we're going to talk about Star Come Wars. On. It is funny that you bring up Jane Austen, though, because I may or may not have just been conversing with a young woman about Mansfield Park. So You uh, know, Jane Austen is in the canon. I hate to tell you guys who are listening to this just because you're geeks like we are, but you have to know Jane Austen. Oh, I'm yeah, sorry. Absolutely. She, I mean... She was really excited that I had seen Mansfield Park in the theater. You know, that was a big deal. What I didn't tell her is that my mother had, like, dragged me by the nose to go yeah, see no, it. No, but. you see, so you don't have to say everything. Mm-hmm. But it's important that you know something. But we are going to start with Star Wars. Rogue One has just come out on Blu-ray. Star Wars Celebration is next week. And so there's going to be a deluge of new Star Wars content. And hopefully we will fit in right there on that nice big wave. Uh, Star Wars came out, the first one, A New Hope, came out when I was 10. So it was a nuclear explosion for me and my generation. One of my great regrets, I never got my sons to a celebration. But we did raise them in a Star Wars uh, environment. They know the canon of Star Wars itself very, very well. Uh, We could talk for an hour about Wedge Antilles. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And another hour about Tycho Chelchu and Winter's relationship, which is totally real and valid. You can't take that away from me, Disney. (laughs) But let's stick with Rogue One. One of the questions that we have uh, discussed ourselves and actually heard from our friends who are not as deep into the universe as we are is, well, so how would you watch what exists on film now for Star Wars. And we're not talking about the TV shows. If you just stick to the movies, because, of course, for a while, that was a real dividing line in Star Wars. There was what George Lucas made, and then there was everything else. And that was a very easy line to follow. But hard as it is to believe, for us, there are still people out there who have not watched the Star Wars movies. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm very glad. I'm at, a, I'm at a place in my life where I don't freak out when people tell me that anymore. Why not? Because I... It, I do. Well, it basically cost me too many chances with young women. Oh, oh Because okay, there are plenty right. of young women who haven't seen Star Wars, and if I did the big freak out, you know, I mark myself as, you know, just kind of like, oh, he's just a geek. Yeah. So, talking about the order is important because there is going to be a lot more Star Wars movies on the way. And kind of establishing a baseline of, okay, how do we get people into the saga? What should they watch, in what order, is really important. And right, because to, they came out in a weird order. So should we just give the shotgun order first, and then we'll ask where does Rogue One fit in that? Well, let's start even more basic than that, okay. because this is a real question I've had presented okay. to me, which is, which ones came out first? People see episode one, and they, you know, just the title of that, and they assume that's the one that came out in 1977. That is a real thing I've encountered. Right. Um, but the release order of the films was what is now called Episode 4, A New Hope, originally just titled Star Wars. Episode 5, Empire Strikes Back, followed in 1980. And after that, the original trilogy, what it's referred to now as, concluded with Return of the Jedi, or Episode 6. Then there was a 16-year gap between Episode 6, Return of the Jedi, and the beginning of the prequel trilogy, with Episode 1, which was released in theaters in 1999. After that, another three-year gap followed, and Attack of the Clones came out in 2002. After that, Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith, in 2005. There was another 10-year break there between films, and then Episode 7 comes out. So, as you can tell, the real-world release order is not at all the viewing order that you should have. So, to that end, people have created, as my father mentioned, a shotgun order. 
So the shotgun order is that you go ahead and honor the cultural import of Star Wars, right? We're talking about something that, yes, many people think of as just a geek movie, but it is so big now, and guess what? Because Disney has it, it's never going away. This is a part of our culture. So you start with what really blew the culture up, and that is Episode 4. Go ahead and start with that. Then you would go right into Episode 5, which many people still consider the best of all of these movies. It's very intense, it's got a lot of humor though, and it's got a big reveal at the end of it. Mm -hmm. And at the end of that reveal, at the end of Episode 5, then you get to do a flashback. Now, the trick is... A lot of people, like Samuel and myself, don't like episode one. There's really a lot of silly stuff in it that is below the intelligence level of the other movies. There are a lot of people who think you don't need to watch episode one at all, other than maybe the pod race and there's a lightsaber fight at the end that's kind of cool. I'm actually one of those. I dearly love Star Wars. I love that I've shared it with my sons. But I think you go episode four, five, you skip episode one, and then you go to episode two and three as a flashback for who is Darth Vader. That then lets you come back out of five right into episode six, which has a great uh, storyline where the father and the son really come together and there is redemption at the end of episode six. That redemption is very important. Then you get to jump forward to the first Disney movie, which was episode seven of Force Awakens. So there's your shotgun order, as many of the fans understand it. Four, five, two, three, six, seven. So, Star Wars math. There you exactly. go. Exactly. However, Disney has deliberately thrown a wrench into that by now unleashing the Star Wars spinoff films on us, which are called Star Wars Stories. You'll see them as kind of subheaders under these new films that are coming out that aren't main numbered films. Rogue One is the very first of these Star Wars stories. It's directed by Gareth Edwards, a very talented British director, who you guys might know from directing the 2014 Godzilla film. Uh, after he had been on the indie circuit for a while, that was really his first big American blockbuster. And through the success of that film, he was given a shot at doing one of the very first Star Wars stories outside of the main narrative of the films. So before we try and fit that into the complicated viewing order that you would hand a brand new viewer who's never seen Star Wars, uh, I'd like to know what you think about it. You like that Godzilla movie a lot, and then what, how would you compare that with what Rogue One was? I think, uh, being a huge fan of Gareth Edwards, as I am, I see he and I enjoy a lot of the same things, and he has a lot of the same opinions on where these pieces of the pop culture fit. Uh, you know, his, I remember watching interviews with him before Godzilla came out where he talked about Godzilla, yes, being a product of the atom bomb, but he also liked the idea of it being a mythological creature, something that predates humanity entirely. And I thought that was really cool because I'd been dreaming about that since I was eight. Um, <laughs> and I really liked the idea when the first trailers and concept art of Rogue One came out that this was a Star Wars story that was very much in line with the video games I grew up on. This is a narrative that you could have played out in Star Wars Battlefront on your Xbox or PlayStation 2 back in 2004. That first shot at the end of the very first trailer for Rogue One, where the main characters are running towards an adapt with nothing but small personnel arms, is straight from those video games. <laughs> and I have no doubt that those played a significant factor in the creation of this film. So I 
broadly, generally, we can talk about individual stuff, obviously, but I broadly really like Rogue One. I see a lot of uh, film techniques that I think uh, are, they give a lot of life to Star Wars, uh, a lot of ground level stuff, a lot of kind of shaky cinematography, but not so much that you can't tell what the action is. Uh, I love his sense of uh, personalizing the way that he tells each individual story. You'll notice that Jin is filmed slightly different from, um, you know, Galen, her father, and they're filmed slightly differently from Cassian Andor, who's the mm -hmm. rebel spy. And the space battle is filmed entirely different from that. You know, it's, it feels like a very millennial film. He has brought a lot of different pieces together that maybe, if he wasn't as talented a director, would not fit as well. Mm -hmm. But he's combined espionage movie with basically what is Star Wars Zero Dark Thirty with what turns into in the third act, minor spoilers, you know, a World War II dogfighting film, yep. you know. Yeah. Um, and all those pieces, for some reason, just click into place like the cogs of a, of a, of a clock. Um, I really like Rogue One. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people uh, were looking very closely at Episode Seven, right, the first Disney Star Wars movie. Uh, but I think the degree of difficulty on Rogue One was way higher because they were trying to bridge your generation and mine. We're not using Star Wars for our first podcast just because it's such a big deal to us. But it's really interesting now as I'm kind of aging out of the desired demographic, right? Gen X, I'm turning 50 today. So a lot of the stuff that you guys have enjoyed in pop culture like in the last 10 years, like all those Marvel movies... Those are pitched at me. I was the one who grew up reading the comics that those movies are based on. Okay, They're not really pitching those Marvel movies the way Marvel comics were in the 60s. They're pitching them to Gen X. And they were so successful in storytelling that they got your generation. Yes. But we have seen over and over and over again, and we will talk about it on further podcasts, that if you don't get it right for people of my generation, it flops. Yeah. Right? If you don't get the source material right, it flops. And so to go and make a movie like Rogue One, which is specifically tying into the very first Star Wars movie, you just can't get more ambitious than that. Mm -hmm. You know, I liked a Force, uh, The Force Awakens. Uh, I'm happy with what Disney has done so far. But to go back in that timeline of movies and say, we're going to make something that is either going to live or die based on how it interacts with the very first Star Wars movie from 1977. That is like saying, you know what, we're going to rebuild the Eiffel Tower. Yeah. We think we can do it better out of aluminum. Yeah. You know, and you're just like, well, okay. And I actually think they succeeded. I am not a big fan of the Godzilla movie that this director did before. Samuel likes it much better than I did. I thought it was okay, and we'll talk about that in another podcast. So I really was on the edge of my seat to go see Rogue One, but I thought it was fantastic. It is uh, right up there with Episode Five in my book. It hangs together very well. It's a very human movie, and it's a very Star Wars movie. It is. Uh, I, something that I keep coming back to with Rogue One is, uh, as you mentioned, it, it's such a ballsy film to make. It, it is so very uh, difficult to try and create that creative tissue between arguably what many people would cite as the source of their love for Star Wars, and an entirely new narrative with an entirely new cast. You know, these are all characters that we've never met before in either the canon that existed, the canon of Star Wars, small c canon, that existed before Disney or after Disney. 
And what I keep coming back to is just how seamless it feels. It really feels like, you know, aside from a couple of the special effects, you can just press play on that and flow right in episode four. Right. So it was interesting that, you know, we're talking in a very theoretical way about how the narrative fits. Mm -hmm. But, of course, to get that to fit, they did some very interesting special effects. And, uh, again, I am really not a fan of doing CGI for humans. Uh, I think that Uncanny Valley is a real thing where your eye, as a human, can tell what's fake. Right, so in episode one of Star Wars, one reason why I don't think anybody needs to watch it is because I hated Jar Jar. Yeah, and yet in Rogue One, of course, now the CGI is much better. But the fact that they pulled footage from 1977 and put it into this movie and did it so well is really interesting. And then, of course, the big question is, what do you think about Tarkin? That's really where the rubber hits the road in yeah. terms of a modern movie that's tying into filmmaking done when I was 10 years old. Does that work? So I watched the full like uh, um, ILM behind the scenes of how they made Tarkin in their computers. Mm-hmm. And basically what they said is, the two main points that I took away was, first off, it only looks as good as it does is because they were able to find a cast of his face, traditional special effects, from an old Hammer film he did. <laughs> That's they, a, I did not know that. Yeah, That's so hilarious. They went, in, they went in and found in somebody's archives a face cast he had done for, you know, Vampire Killer 16 or whatever. <laughs> I mean, because he was cranking those Hammer films out, guys. Yeah, well, so we should explain what that is. Tell. So the Hammer films were a British series of horror films in, I want to say, the 60s, early 70s. Yes. Um, they have a cult following still today. and um, We are not saying that those are in the canon, by the way. But no. to understand the canon, it helps to understand all these other B-films and, and side projects. Yes. So um, the actor who played Tarkin was in a ton of those. I mean, just, I think he played Van Helsing in half of his total IMDb credits. <laughs> right. And they found an old mold of his face from wow. one of the movies where his character dies. So the ILM guys, right off the bat, say... Our computers are good, but they're not this good. We still need the traditional special effects yeah. that had the cast of his face. Yeah. The second thing was, the final decision to put that on film did not rest with even the director, Gareth Edwards, the ILM team, or anyone else. It went straight to Kathleen Kennedy, who is the current head of Lucasfilm, mm-hmm. who is responsible for the Star Wars Renaissance. She's the one who talked George into selling it to Disney. Um, she's been a longtime producer in Hollywood, widely trusted, widely beloved because she really cares about this stuff. So when she went down and ILM, you know, it was finished. The footage was there. They had spent hundreds of man hours creating this stuff. The final call was down to her whether or not to include Tarkin scenes or not. And she said, it is good enough. Put it in there. So I think that's a big vote of confidence. And that's actually the, where I come down on it. As a viewer, I can tell that the Tarkin in Rogue One is fake, mm-hmm. right? He's not a human being. But I will always draw the bottom line at, does it help the story, mm-hmm. right? I will always come down on that, <clears throat> so I will forgive certain things. One of the things I hate about our current kind of movie review hyperculture is it feels like a lot of people out there are just finding something to pick at. Yes, and I will let some things go if it serves the broader story. Yeah. Now, uh, not only am I the you know the target 
because I was 10 when the first movie came out. But I loved Tarkin, right? If, if you watch the Star Wars canon carefully, that first movie, A New Hope, Vader is not the bad guy. Mm-mm. Tarkin is the bad guy. <laughs> and I am, am fascinated by that to this day. You know, everybody out there who's buying the bed sheets and the lunch boxes and the stickers and the video games, you know, yeah, Vader is the bad guy that has permeated our culture. But if you look at the actual storytelling that's going on, it's Tarkin. So I was really happy to see that he's the bad guy in Rogue One. Yeah, he's very much, and it's not just Tarkin, it's really everyone in the Imperial military who's like Tarkin as well. They've yeah, really right. made him uh, kind of the head um, of this military, this segment of the military, and I really found the interactions between him and Orson Krennic, who's one of the other main villains of the piece, who's kind of the Death Star designer, um, really interesting. I think those are the best scenes that have Krennic in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not a huge Orson Krennic fan. I think he no, falls I'm not either. pretty flat a lot of the time. But his scenes with Tarkin are really interesting. And partially, partially, part of that is because we already know who Tarkin is. Mm-hmm. And part of it is also because he, he just... I don't know if it's just the effect of being with an established character, but it's pretty clear that um, Ben Mendelsohn... Ben mm-hmm. Mendelsohn, uh, who plays Orson Krennic, just kind of brings another level of intensity, a lot more focus to those scenes because maybe it, because he's such an established part of the canon. Um, maybe so. I actually I thought he was the weakest part of the movie, the, the yeah. Mendelsohn guy yeah. uh, character. So you well, know we, that's kind of the joke to be made is that a CGI villain was better than the live villain. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that's the power of the storytelling. Yeah. But. Um, there are obviously all sorts of characters in this. Uh, if you've listened, if you're listening to the podcast, you're already probably fully spoiled on this. So we're just going to dive right into it. Um, I really like the 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 whole cast, basically outside of Orson. I think the whole the Rebel Cell has a lot of uh, personality to it. I oh, like yeah. all those actors. Yeah. Um, I think they interact really well, and I think they can stand shoulder to shoulder to some of the best relationships we've seen in Star Wars. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of people mm-hmm. like. Uh, Baze Mabius uh, and Chirut Imoue. Those are the characters' names. I'm, I'm trying to remember the actors' names. But uh, the blind, uh, maybe Force-sensitive, maybe not. I like the idea that he's not Force-sensitive, but that's yeah. just me. Yeah. Uh, been a lot of debate about that in the family. Uh, my, my brother is very insistent that uh, you know uh, Chirut has the Force. And I'm like, well, we never see him use a Force push. We never see him (laughs) utilize anything. He could just be a really talented blind guy. He could be Star Wars Daredevil. (laughs) I do love that character. Um, A lot of people have uh, complained that at the end of Rogue One, everyone dies. But guess what? A lot of people die. What about all those people on Alderaan? Yeah. They died, all okay? those dudes. Jimmy Smith is dead, man. <laughs> Jimmy is so dead. Like, they brought him back just to remind you, by the way, Jimmy's going to die in a few minutes. Like, Because <laughs> his final scene in Rogue One is just like, he's like, man. Like, Mon Mothma, another you know great character they've brought back and done total justice to, is talking about, you know, she's... She is worried because he's going to entrust this incredibly dangerous mission to his 17-year-old daughter. Yeah. And he's, you know, he's not worried about Leia at all. He has total faith in her. And we're thinking, well, we're not worried about Leia. Dude, you're about to bite it. You're about to bite it harder than anyone has ever bit it. Your entire planet. 
So there was a lot to like in Rogue One. Uh, I'm going to make sure that we have it as a Blu-ray. Uh, but the question is, so that worked so well. Mm-hmm. First of all, where do you put it when you try and introduce the whole Star Wars main storyline to somebody brand new? And what does Disney new do now? I mean, like, can they make a movie that fits in between Episode Four and Episode Five? Because you know, we see at the end of episode four, they blew up the first Death Star. Yay, we're all hugging and happy. Everybody has medals. And then the next thing you see at the beginning of episode five is they're on this barren, snowy wasteland. So somewhere in between there, there's a movie. Yes. Or four. Yeah. Or, or I mean, it's, it's a... All of these in-between spaces of movies are rife with possibilities. Yeah. Um, but I remember when we were discussing what order we would show, and I think mine differed from yours on, on one point. So you you give yours. I'm trying to remember. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to, so I think... Uh, I'll start with mine if you don't remember go yours. Go ahead. So my order now is this. You've got to start with the first one that was ever released. It, it, it's, it is the beginning of the story. Don't listen to George. Mr. <laughs> Lucas is going to tell you, Oh, well, I always really wanted the story to be about Anakin Skywalker. No, shut up. It is very clearly <laughs> Luke's story. Luke's story. It is Luke's story. The prequels are nice, but they are prequels to Luke's story. Anyway, so, <laughs> episode four, A New Hope. Then, because in the real world, there was this three-year gap between... Episode 4 and Episode 5, and Star Wars Fever was at a pitch, and there was almost nothing. There was, like, no content yeah. coming out. There was, like, some Marvel comics and some action figures, and that was all you had for a while. Well, uh, to be fair, the very first Star Wars novel came out, Splinter of the Mind's Eye. Yeah, and I still, Foster. I still have my copy nice. of that. <laughs> but, um, so to simulate kind of that spacing, I would put Rogue One right in there. Because I know we're already jumping backwards, but it gives you context to the wider rebellion that you will see in Episode 5. Because not only are they now on this barren wasteland hellhole of a planet at the start of Episode Mm -hmm. 5, the rebellion has grown from what you see in in Episode 5, and pretty exponentially. You know, Mm -hmm. they have a big fleet at the end of Empire. Yeah. You know, their their military forces aren't able to compete with the Empire in a straight-up fight. But they have military. You know, it's 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 pretty significant. Um, yeah. So as you've gleaned, I mean, and you can probably see this in your own uh, look at our culture. You know, Star Wars is a retelling of World War II oh, in yeah. a lot of ways. Okay, it, it is a war story. It was interesting to me when Episode Seven came out after so many years, and this is the Disney you know continuation. A lot of people are like, "Oh, this is such a bummer because if you just ended it at Episode Six, you know, Vader's dead but redeemed." Uh, the rebels have won, and the galaxy is at peace, blah, blah, blah. Well, anybody who read the other material, like the comic books and the novels, like Samuel and Truman and I did, well, we know that there was a lot more fighting because you had to sort of clean up, you were battling remnants of the Empire. So when Episode 7 comes out and they're still fighting, not a surprise. Well, that's also, I mean, and and we won't get too far into this segment of discussion, but that's that's the real world. That's the real world. It never... I grew up in the Cold War, which never ended until 1989. Now, especially since September 11th, we are in a war against terror. It's not going to end. Yes, there will always be another conflict. There will always be individuals who wish to do civilization and hope and prosperity harm. That will always exist. So I never 
that was such a weird complaint to me in episode seven. It's yeah. like, yeah. yeah, sorry, evil doesn't get vanquished. Even in a world where you have forces that are so clearly defined by the light side and the dark side, yes. guess what? If you take away the dark side, that's not balance to the force. Right. Balance to the force is hopefully there's more light than good, but there's it's probably just going to be a constant conflict. Yeah, it's a constant conflict, as it is within each of us. If you look at the world religions in our world, they all talk about that battle, good and evil, within yourself. So, uh, to come back to, oh, yeah, the, to the order, to the order, I agree with Samuel uh, that you would go ahead and show Rogue One right after showing Episode Four, A New Hope, because since this is all one big war story, what do people do after a battle? They tell the story, mm -hmm. right? That's a phrase in our culture. A war story. A war story is you kind of bragging a little bit, but but telling your version of this grand event that you lived through. And maybe you were successful, maybe you just saw success, but you are a survivor and you're telling the war story. So after the Death Star blows up, it would be very natural for the remnants of the rebellion to sit down around the campfire and say, well, wasn't that awesome how we stole the plans and we stuck our necks out and it was against the odds and we won. And it also gives a lot of punch that didn't initially exist to when uh, when episode 5 opens uh, they have a bunch of snow speeders in the snow and they're they're doing all a bunch of cool stuff against the the imperial walkers and the name of their flight group in that is rogue so if you go for rogue 1 and then start episode 5 you get this emotional gut punch cuz you realize the rogue 1 designation that those characters have had has been passed down to an entire squadron in their memory which is Awesome. I do think it's awesome as well. Thank you very much for spending half an hour with us. Uh, it's really nice to be able to put this out where you guys can join us because really what you just heard for the last half an hour, that was considered a Tuesday night dinner at our house. Well, yeah, and then plus like three more hours. Like, <laughs> but we'll cut it short. We'll, get, we'll cut you guys at half an hour for this one. Thank you very much for listening to the Review Podcast. Podcast.